Today we're back in Romans chapter 13, and you know we've been dealing with government. We've been talking about that great chapter that really lays out how we as God's people should understand our government, how we should view it, and then how we should interact with it as, as Christians. I laid out for you the three institutions that God has ordained, and we have talked about those in pretty much in great length. The first one we talked about was civil government. And we laid this out and showed you the book of Ecclesiastes and how that all forms of government are for one thing, and that is to get around God and His Word. And um, I gave you some great verses. I gave you Proverbs 19, verse 21, that talks about there's many devices in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. That's a tremendous verse. I gave you Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25, that says, There is a way that seemeth right unto men, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That's an incredible verse. I gave you 2 Corinthians 4, 4 and Luke chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, that actually showed you how that in the world that we live in right now, that the Satan is called the God of this world, and how Jesus himself recognized that all governments at this particular point in time, called the times of the Gentiles, are under his control. I took you to Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, and I showed you the setting up of the Gentile nations. I gave you a tremendous verse in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, that talked about, uh, really, which is a key verse in understanding government in Romans chapter 13, and that is the fact that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And I talked to you how that no matter whether it's a good king or a bad king, that God uses them to accomplish his purpose. I showed you Psalm chapter 9, verse 17, that how that the Bible says the wicked shall be cast into hell in all nations that forget God. But probably the single greatest verse, and I know this was true for me in my life when I started to put it all together, but I think probably the greatest single verse was the one I gave you in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4. It simply says, The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. And I think that that single verse right there probably pulls more history together in the last 6,000 years of man's history on earth. It simply tells us that the devil, now he uses the word the wicked here, and we know that's the devil, but when you find the word the wicked uh, in the Old Testament, especially in Proverbs, it's always a direct reference to the Antichrist. We know that the devil is the Antichrist, but it's a direct reference to that context because he is the wicked. And uh, the Bible talks about in the New Testament when the wicked is revealed, talking about the Antichrist. And yet it shows you that the wicked was created for the day of evil. The day in evil will be what we find in Matthew chapter 24, which is commonly called the abomination of desolations. And if you don't know what that means, that simply means that in the middle of the tribulation period that the devil, the wicked one, sits on the throne in Jerusalem and claims to be God, and therefore defiling that temple to the place, and that really kicks off the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, which ends with the most important event in the Bible, and that will be the second coming of Christ. That verse simply says, that God created everything for himself and even the devil for the purpose of God establishing his kingdom. And we know that that's found in the Bible in the context of the day of the Lord, the Lord's day, the second coming of Christ. Over 1,200 times in your Old Testament, it talks about that, and it really makes up the theme of the Bible. God allows the devil to do his thing, but everything he does helps shape the world for the second coming of Christ. God, through his church, prepares the souls of men for the coming day when Christ comes to judge all men. 
Both work toward the same day. One prepares the physical kingdoms on this earth, and the other one prepares the spiritual kingdom on this earth for the second coming of Christ. It's just that simple. And you learned that. And then last week, and you should have all that stuff in your Bible now, or at least in your notebook, uh, so you can put it into your Bible in Romans chapter 13 with all of those great verses that I gave you. Now, last week, we laid out the second structure of God's authority system, and that was the church. We saw God's spiritual uh, accountability system uh, laid out for you and me as believers. What we did last week, if you remember, we defined the church. We looked at the church as God's spiritual accountability structure in our lives. And then we looked at the authority that the church has in your life and my life and put it all together. We talked about accountability and responsibility. We talked about a chain of command that goes down through the New Testament church. We basically had come up with a conclusion that there's two governments. There's one physical and one spiritual. The one physical is run by the devil to orchestrate all of the nations, physical nations on this earth toward the second coming of Christ. The spiritual one is through you and me, through the Holy Spirit of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and we now know that that one operates uh, to bring the whole structure uh, to, again, the second coming of Christ. And you should have all that down in your Bible now, especially those of you that are on the third level, because you need to understand how the constitutional structure of a New Testament church works. Now, the third one, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this today, but I told you there was three. I told you there was civil government. I told you that there was the church, and then there was the family. In actuality, in the order that they are in your Bible would be the family first, uh, and then, of course, civil government, and then, of course, the church. That's how they appear in your Bible. But I want to just touch on it a moment because uh, uh, for a couple of reasons. I think it's important for you to know it, but I want you to see how it fits into all this too. I'm going to talk to you about the importance of the family. You know, basically when the family breaks down, everything else falls apart. Most of your kids don't know this, and I wouldn't, I don't know that I would threaten them with this or scare them with this. But, uh, you know, we all have children who are rebellious at times. I was a rebellious child uh, when I was a kid, and most of probably you were. We all have rebellious children that we have to deal with at some point. Sometimes they go through stages of it and turn out fine. Sometimes they're rebellious all their life, whatever. Bottom line is this. In the Old Testament, God had a, you know, in, in today, when you have a rebellious child, you bring him to me or you take him to a therapist or you take him to a psychologist or you take him to someplace. Uh, and uh, in the Old Testament, it was different. They didn't have psychologists or therapies. They didn't have pastors. In the Old Testament, they dealt with child rebellion differently than we do today. In the Old Testament, they took him to a rock concert. Now, I'm not talking about the rock concert that you're thinking of. I'm talking about they took him out and they stoned him to death. Uh, the way it would work out, and you'll find it all through the Old Testament. I mean, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18 through 21, probably your best passage. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 16. In fact, it says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, and this is a great verse, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Now, that wasn't the first commandment. I think the honor in the father and the mother, I think if I would count them up right in my mind, was the fifth commandment. But it says it's the first commandment with promise. You know what the promise is? The promise is, as a child, if you don't obey your mom and your dad, you're going to get killed. 
at what happened in the Old Testament. If a mom and a dad had a, a rebellious boy and uh, or girl, uh, and they wouldn't listen to them, wouldn't do what they were supposed to do, and, and were anti-God and anti-whatever, just like kids are today, uh, they took them to the elders. And, of course, the elders of the nation of Israel, they, uh, they try to reason with the boy and try to work the thing out or the girl. And, of course, if it doesn't come to that, then you know what the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 18? They killed them. They took them out and they stoned them. Now, that seems really harsh. But you see, you've got to get the right perspective. There's a great principle unfolding in that. God knew that he was trying to structure a nation, the nation of Israel. He also knew that the key to the nation of Israel was families. And bottom line is simply this, in an Old Testament, if the family goes, in time the nation of Israel goes, in a religious sense, and when a nation of Israel goes away in a religious sense, goes from God, then the structure of the nation as far as a civil government collapses too. My friend, that's exactly what is wrong with America today. That's fundamentally the problem in America. And you'll know that when the family goes, which it has, when a family unit is fractured, which it is, when families no longer can control their children, but the children control their families, which is true, and I'm not necessarily talking about in Christianity, I'm talking about in the overall concept, but it's definitely true in Christianity because we should have the wherewithal to, uh, to, to deal with children. But when the family breaks down in any civil, co- civil government, within the United States or Spain or Germany, wherever it is, the single unit that is the thing, that the glue that holds it all together is the family. When the family goes, the next thing that goes is the church. And when the church goes, the next thing that goes is the country. And that's where we're at today. That's why you're going to find the model set up for you in Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 4. Did you ever see the model? The first attack the devil does, the first attack the devil does on the history of mankind searches for the model for everything else through the Bible. The first attack the devil does is against the Word of God. He shows up to Eve in Genesis chapter 3 and simply says, Yea, hath God said, and then he literally changes what God said. After he attacked and got the Word of God out of the way, you know the next thing he attacked? He attacked the family. Genesis chapter 4. He attacked the family. Because he knew something that most of us don't know, or if we did know it, we don't follow it. And it's the problem in America today, and that is the fact that when the family unit structure breaks down, everything in time breaks down. And uh, those are things that you need to understand. And that's not our study today, but uh, that is an incredible concept that it helps you understand and get the perspective of what's going on in America today. America, in the last 60, 70 years, have lost their children. Some of us are old enough to remember the hippie movement back in the 60s. Most of you don't even know what a hippie is. But uh, the hippie era era was back in the 60s. And the hippie era, you know, was a lot of people, uh, young people, young kids, and they had one issue. You know what their issue was? Authority. They wanted to rebel against any kind of structured authority. So they wore their hair long. They didn't take baths. They wore ugly clothes. They did everything against established society because they were against society. And that that was what, 40, 50 years ago? 
and we're or 40 years ago, and now we're moving to the point where we see it has eroded in everything in our government. I told you a couple of weeks ago, the same hippies that were back in the 60s that were, were against the structure, uh, any kind of authority structure, are now our senators and congressmen and our presidents and uh, everybody just about in office except the old guys are part of that mindset. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tragedy, but that's just the way that it, it, breaks, it breaks down. Now, having said that, let's look at Romans chapter 13 again. I've laid out basically now all three of them for you, two of them very well, and we've made mention of the third one, and we'll talk about that uh, in time more down through there, and we've talked about it before. But let's pick up our, our study again in, in verse 1, and we're going we're gonna to be at verse 4 today, but uh, let's just put it all in a context. It says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, the powers that are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. <clears throat> and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then be not, uh, not be afraid of the power? <clears throat> Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore you must, uh, must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. Uh, for this cause pay we tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom uh, due, a fear to whom uh, fear, honor, and whom honor. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that uh, loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Now, Father, we do thank you and praise you today, and we love you. We thank you for the time we've set aside to study your word for the folks that have come out to hear it today. We pray, Lord, and be mindful of all the things that you've given to us that we need to be stewards over. We pray today, right now, Lord, I pause and I ask you to give Zach and Jenny and Kyle uh, the words to say down there in Warrensburg. And Lord, you take that and let us be found faithful and let the men and women in this church see the tremendous opportunity that we have and we may be able to develop that. And God, I pray that even though as I'm speaking, if it be your will, that you'd put in the heart of some young man and some young lady right now, that someday, Father, if God honors that and, and glorifies that and uses that, that we could start a church down there, Father, that would uh, meet the needs because that's what we're all about. It's foolish for me to stand in the pulpit and ask people to reproduce themselves by winning people to Christ uh, in other people's lives. It's foolish for me, first of all, to do it and ask them to do it if I'm not willing to do it. But it's also foolish, Lord, for me to do it and then ask them to do it but not understand that just as I have to reproduce myself in other people, and these people need to reproduce themselves in other people, that this church needs to reproduce itself. And in time, Lord, help us to do that. And we'll be found faithful in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, we're going to pick it up in verse 4 today. And uh, uh, verse 4 is a key verse to keep in mind. And it says here that talking about civil government now, back to that, that he is a minister of God to thee for good. Now here again, and this is the problem we get into when it comes to uh, the Bible sometimes, that we get used to the definition of a word, and we don't always know that there are multiple definitions of that same word that don't mean the same thing. For instance, you take the word damnation. 
You know, when I say the word damnation, you and I think of it of going to hell and being damned. But when you study your Bible, you learn that there's a physical damnation, that be your flesh, and there's a, there's a spiritual damnation, that would be dying and going to hell. An example of the physical damnation is somebody that lived their life, took drugs and, and booze and all things all of their life, and then wound up dying at an early age because they burned their body out. That's a physical damnation. And, of course, there's two kinds of damnation. There's two kinds of saved in the Bible. And when we hear the word saved, we think, you know, born again. But in the Bible, the word saved, when you find it, is not always talking about being born again. Sometimes the Bible talks about being saved from being deceived, see? It always isn't used that way. And, of course, the context is what determines that. And then you're going to find uh, uh, words like the word temptation. Somebody says, uh, well, um, but the Bible says that uh, God tempts no man with temptation. That's true. Then you go someplace else and it says, and God did tempt Abraham. Contradiction, see? No, no, there's just two different definitions for the word temptation. And that's things you've got to learn. The word hope's another one. Paul says, my hope in Jesus Christ. Oh, you mean Paul's hopes he saved? No. See, when we think of the word hope, we think, well, I hope you show up. Well, I hope you pay me the money you owe me. I say that to my kids all the time. I, 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 I hope you do this. I hope you do that. And so we think when Paul says, Paul says, you know, uh, uh, my hope in Jesus Christ and my salvation in Christ, he, we think that he's saying, well, I'm hope I'm really saved. No, no, no. He's saying in that sense that, that Jesus Christ is his only hope. You see, that's what he's talking about. Now, it takes the word minister. That's another word that has two definitions. When we talk about the word minister, we obviously think church, pastor, Bob, you know, uh, he's a minister. Uh, he talks about training ministers. And, of course, the word minister uh, doesn't always mean in the context of a church. You know what? If you'd go to England, you know what you find? You find a prime minister. Uh, you, you, in our own country, you'll have the minister of, of foreign affairs or a minister of this or a minister of the interior. And uh, in that case, a minister as he's talking about here, is nothing to do with God in the sense of the church or being a minister like I am or like some of you are, but it's an aspect of taking care of the details of that particular country. And that's what he's talking about when he's saying that a president, Obama, anybody down and through in history, is God's minister. And God, through them, ministers to take care of things, uh, and even God uses them as a minister in civil affairs. Now, let me just throw this out to you, and I'm glad this is on tape, So, because somebody would love to take this and use it. Well, you wouldn't think of Adolf Hitler of being a, a minister of God, would you? I mean, I, I mean, come on, Adolf Hitler, a minister of God? But you see, if you lived in 606 B.C., you wouldn't think, Nebuchadnezzar was the minister of God. It's just the fact that you don't know anything about Nebuchadnezzar, and because you live in a close proximity to 1940, 1945, we know about the atrocities of Adolf Hitler, but we don't understand the atrocities of Nebuchadnezzar. How about 589, Shanachrib? Would he be the guy that took the northern tribes into captivity? It's hard for us to realize that he would be a minister of God. And yet, in the sense of Romans chapter 13, in the sense of 
whatever God is doing, civil nations are used of God and their leaders as ministries because the heart of the kings and the hand of the Lord to accomplish what he wants to accomplish to get ready for the second coming of Christ. Let me show you something. I'll show you this thing in action. You don't have to turn back there, but write this down and look it up later sometime. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. Now, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28 is talking about Cyrus, king of Persia. Cyrus, the king of Persia, was a pagan king. Cyrus, the king of Persia, was somebody who died and probably went to hell. There's no record of anything, any time, any place in his life where ever he give any honor to glory to God. Uh, he's a pagan Gentile uh, king uh, in the time that the devil uh, runs the world, in the times of the Gentile, just like everybody else. And yet in Isaiah 44, verse 28, you know what God says to him? He says, Cyrus, my shepherd. My shepherd. Well, that's the word for pastor. He says, Cyrus, my shepherd. You know what he says in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1? He says, Cyrus, my anointed. My anointed. That's the, that's the designation for somebody in a ministry. When we ordained Greg last week, you know what we did? We laid our hands on him, and basically this church, through the Holy Spirit of God, was anointing him for the work of the ministry. And yet here's God calling a pagan king his shepherd, and his anointed. So Cyrus was God's minister for right, even though he belonged in the devil's system. Now let me just say this to you. I got to stop here and say this. If you ever grasp this concept that I'm trying to lay out to you, if you ever get your head wrapped around it, and you see this thing uh, the way that it is, and I'm trying to lay it out for you, as inept that I may be, uh, if you ever see this thing and you get it into your mind with what we're doing on Tuesday night on church history uh, or in the whole concept of the Bible, brother, look out. I'm telling you. You know what Cyrus did? He was the wicked king that died and went to hell that had no reverence for God whatsoever, but he was God's minister for right because you know what did God did? God reached down and put into his heart to send the Jews back. And they go back under Cyrus after the seven-year captivity. And in that sense, he was God's minister. He was God's anointed. You know what Adolf Hitler did in 19, by 1940 and 1945? He got the Jews ready to go back to the land that they did in 1948. If it wouldn't have been for Adolf Hitler in World War II, as wicked and godless and perverted and he's absolutely probably in hell this morning, but he was God's minister in the, spe- in the space that he was the, probably one of the wickedest guys in the 20th century. But God used him to get the Jew back in 1948, just like he did Cyrus. When somebody says, talks like that, they, you get all nervous because you, you relate to Adolf Hitler. You relate to Joseph Stalin. You relate to uh, Cadell uh, Castro. You relate to Mussolini. You relate to people like uh, Osama bin Laden. Who would think today that Osama bin Laden is God's minister? He's a Muslim. He hates you. He'll kill you in a heartbeat. He lays awake at night thinking about how to destroy America because he hates us. And it would be the farthest thing in our mind to think that he's God's minister, but he is. You know why? Because God is using him to set up the Middle East where the Lord's going to come back. If you can ever grasp what I'm laying out to you and you can keep that in your mind when you look at history, and you realize that nothing, nothing, nothing that any nation does, any king does, and anybody does has anything to do with God's plan other than help it. 
It gives whole new meaning to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, which says, All things work together for good to them that love God are called according to his purpose. It gives a whole new idea and concept. And it gives you what I try to get to you all the time. It gives you perspective, you see. It gives you perspective. And uh, it's, it's, it's an incredible concept. Uh, all down through history, no matter how good they were, no matter how bad they were, they were God's minister. And God uses them in spite of themselves. Uh, Pharaoh's another one. God put Egypt down, uh, put Israel down in Egypt for 430 years. Put them under the hardest burden and bondage you ever saw in your life. Many of them died down there. But you know what? God used that experience to forge them into a nation. And it's, just, it's endless. It's endless. All right, now look at verse 4. It says, For he is the minister of God to thee for good. Whether he's wicked or not, it's immaterial. If thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Now, there's a number of things in this passage that we need to comment on. But the first thing I want you to see is found in verse 4. And this concept, totally foreign today, and that is to be afraid. See, to be afraid. We have in our own country a complete and total breakdown of this concept, not only in civil government, but also in God's government. Fear, my friend, no matter what you're told today, fear is probably the healthiest motion you've got to keep you out of trouble. I mean, when you start to raise your children and you start to deal with your kids, don't you want your kids to love you, but you want them to fear you? You don't want your kids to be afraid of you. You don't want them to crawl in the corner when you walk in the room. You want them to run to you. But you want them to understand that as their parent, If they do wrong, there's consequences that they have to face. And that's what the civil government does. It's a structure. And that's why he says, be afraid. Because if you do wrong, you're going to get busted. And the problem we have in our country today, the problem we have in our churches, that nobody's afraid of the consequences anymore. The fear of consequences that go along with breaking the law. There's certain parts of uh, you, any, and just about any place in this town you can go, you could have the most intention, best intentions, and just be out doing your thing and get killed. You could get killed by a drive-by shooting. Why? Because gangs today, you want to get into the gang. See, gangs in my day, you want to get into the gang. You know what? You, you, you threw a rock through somebody's window. Or you cut your wrist, not very bad, and you were blood brothers, you know. It was goofy stuff. As they got on, you know, when they got fraternities and all that, you know, when you wanted to be part of fraternity, you had to do something. Uh, you know, you swallowed goldfish. I remember one time one guy got into an organization and they had to eat 100 uh, whole raw boiled eggs, you know, in, you know, in 10 seconds or something like that. I don't know, something like that. You know, we've come a long way. Now you want to get in a gang and the inner city, you know what you do? You walk up to somebody and you kill them. You shoot them. You kill them. You don't know them, know nothing about them. They're, a, they're a totally a victim to it. And the only thing is because we today have no value for life. We walk up, you cap the guy, and now you're part of the club. And he feels nothing about it. There's no consequence. There's no, oh, what did I do? 
He's now part, in fact, he feels good about it. He's patted on the back. You made it. You're one of us. You can kill without any remorse, and that's what we're looking for. That's why the abortions are out of control today. That's why abortion is off the page. People will do those things and never have one aspect of anything, uh, any consequences that go along with it. And there's no consequences of wrongdoing anymore. I mean, you literally, as O.J. Simpson, get away with murder. Because you can always find an avenue without or a slick lawyer that'll get you through it. The whole system is backwards and broken. Now, this is one of the things that I face in, in ministering with so many of you young people. And, uh, and some of you older folks, uh, you know what I'm about to say. I really feel sorry for, for you younger kids if you're in your 20s or maybe even your 30s. I feel sorry for you. Not in a bad way, but I feel sorry for you because of the fact that in our generation, in our generation, we grew up respecting authority. We always didn't do what's right. And there was as much crime and corruption back then as there was today. But there was an attitude in the world and in the country about the fact of, of, of authority structure and consequences to what you did. And it, it, it's not there anymore. In my day, there was no divorce. There was no divorce. When I grew up in the 50s and the 60s, nobody got a divorce. You know who got divorces? Movie stars. And you know what it was? It was a scandal back then. How many of you know who Elizabeth Taylor is? Good. Elizabeth Taylor was, was, was hot to trot when, in the 50s and the 60s. She was beautiful. And she was a starlet, boy. I mean, she was absolutely gorgeous. She played in a lot of old movies. And uh, I don't know if she's still alive or now or not, but... Is she? Yeah. She still is? <laughs> she was drop-dead gorgeous. And we didn't have tabloids back then. Like you go to the thing now and you buy the tabloids on the way out. But they had, they had magazines about movie stars, you know. And uh, I mean, maybe they still do. But now they didn't have tabloids back then. They didn't have National Enquirer for Inquiring Minds. They didn't, they didn't have all of that. But you got movie star magazines and that was the hot rage for women to read. And I remember she was married probably four or five times. I remember the first time she got married, she married a guy by the name of Richard Todd. And, uh, and then she married some guy that, after that that was, that was a real dork-looking guy. And then she married somebody else. And then she finally married Richard Burton. How many know who Richard Burton is? All right. He was married to her. And she'd been married three or four times. And the scandals were every time. I mean, it was a, it was a scandal every time she left, uh, she left one guy for somebody else. And the only people who did that were rich people and movie stars and the common ordinary people were, in, were incensed or enthralled or enraged one way or the other. It was something that you just didn't do. Boy, look at it today. See? Look at it today. I told you in my day there was no abortions. There was no abortion. I'll tell you something else. In my day there was no drugs. If you, when you went to high school in my era, in 1960, 65, 66, 67, 68, when you went to high school back then, the only people who took drugs were people who were outcast with everybody else. I remember back in the 40s and the 50s, whoever heard of Gene Krupa? Good. 
Let's try this again. Whoever heard of Gene Krupa? I want, hold him up. I want to see here now. Okay. If you know who he is, keep it up. I want to get, I'm, doing, I'm taking a survey. Who knows Gene Krupa? Put it, do you know him? Now get your hand up so I can see. It's not hard to follow. Boy, there's a generation gap for us. Gene Krupa was a drummer. And uh, he was a good drummer. He played with all the big bands back in the, in the big band era. He played with Benny Goodman. He played with Tommy Dorsey. He played with uh, all the great bands back then. And Gene Krupa comes to the place where uh, after he got really famous and he got into all of this stuff, he got smoking marijuana. They called him reefers back then. They didn't call him marijuana. They called reefers. And uh, he got taken pills. And uh, you know what? And he got a drug addiction. And so uh, he lost everything that he had as far as no band would touch him. Because the only, now, the only bands back then that did that were the real seedy ones. And that's who he got hooked up to, but he got, it, got him hooked up on it. And uh, when he got to the place, what, he got hooked on it, and, uh, and, he, and it, they found out about it, and he got busted by the cops, and it became public, he couldn't get a job playing anywhere. They wouldn't touch him. They wouldn't have anything to do with him. About, he went to rehab, and he got all squared out. And he, a band took a chance on it. And you know what he did? In his first performance when he came back, he was playing a bunch of college kids. College kids now. And he, they, it was one of those uh, sunken floors where uh, the band down at the bottom, and when they started out, the band kind of starts playing, and it raises up the floor, and everybody's cr- When that thing come up, and they knew that Gene Krupa was there, they threw things at him. They called him doper. They called him everything in the world. You know why? Because back then, in my era... Only the idiots do it. Well, by the way, only the idiots still do it today, but we just got more idiots now. That's all it is to it. And that's the way it went. Justice was swift. You did the crime, you did the time. There was no drive-by shootings. There was no random killings. You know what you could do in my day? You could park your car at night and leave your keys in the car. You could go to bed at night and not lock your front door or your back door. My mom still scares me to death when she's in a retirement home now. But when she lived by herself, she never locked her door. She would go to bed at night and I would say, Mom, lock your door. Oh, she's living in the past. You try that today, man, and you'll wind up with your throat cut. But not back then. You know what? Back then, you kids could, as a young kid, you could play all through the neighborhood. You'd go wherever you want to go. Nobody molested children back then. Oh, they did, but not like today. And as a child, you can, a parent, you can let your kids go anywhere with anybody. Try it today. See? And you know what the problem is? Today we have no fear of consequences. We're not afraid. Because the structure, our society, has taken from our generation and the past three or four generations two key things. And that is responsibility and accountability. Young people today and generations going back, the reason why there's crime, murder, and everything that goes on in our society is simply because our society has taken away the consequences of doing something wrong. You're a 15-year-old kid, and I can't even imagine a 15- or a 12-year-old kid killing somebody with a gun. I mean, not accidentally, not two kids playing cowboy and didn't know it was loaded. I mean, shooting somebody because you didn't like them. But you know why they do it? Because their parents are up to that point, put no consequences on them. You know why they do it? Because they get to the point that, th- that they're 15 years old, they go into a, a, a juvenile facility until they're 21, and then they go free. No consequences. 
If you murder somebody today, you'll get your slick lawyer and he'll get you an, some kind of plea bargain. He'll get you a thing where if it's capital murder, they'll work a deal that it's manslaughter. He'll get you a deal where, you know what, that if you, you can't get out of it, it's capital murder, he'll say you were temporary insane or you were drove by some passion. There's no consequences anymore. No, there's no responsibility for what we do. And that's how it's broken down. That's how it's broken down. Somebody kills somebody, and the first thing you hear is, well, he had a bad relationship with his parents. Okay. And that has to do with what? Some said, well, well you know what? He was a kid. He just killed 15, 15 women. And probably 60 more we haven't found yet. And the defense attorney gets up and he says, well, Your Honor, and gentlemen of the jury, you know, you got to understand they had a bad home life. He had a bad relationship with his family. Well, everybody else was out there eating, uh, you know, eating sugar-frosted flakes and eating Cheerios and all that stuff. All he had was old cold mush. And because he was denied those things, he wound up being a serial killer. <laughs> That'll work. Crazy. In my day, when you took dope, you were a doper. Today, you're a substance abuser. Sounds nice, doesn't it? Back in my day, you were an alcoholic, you were drunk. Now you're a chronic alcoholic. Back in my day, and I realize a lot of people lose their homes today because of no reason for themselves, but if you got, we had bums. Today, they're called transients. Sounds nice, doesn't it? Our whole society has taken the dredges of that kind of life and tried to give it some kind of really nice name. You're not a drunk. You're a chronic alcoholic. Sounds almost want to be one with that kind of name. Depression, anxiety, drug abuse, alcoholism, not sin anymore. It's now a sickness. You go to the, somebody with your drug abuse problem or your alcohol problem, and they'll tell you, well, it's in your genes. It's in your family. You can't help yourself. It's hereditary. And what we've done in our society that adds weight to it is that we've taken S-I-N, sin, and make it a sickness. Now, you know what's wrong with making sickness a sin? When you... You're, nobody here, if you got a cold today, unless you kiss somebody on the mouth hard who you knew they had a cold... If you got the flu, you didn't go out in the morning saying, I'm going to go get the flu today and I'm going to enjoy it. You had no responsibility or accountability to get the cold or the flu. The moment you make sin a sickness, then you take away any responsibility or accountability for it. This is where our whole society is at today. It's broken. It's broken down. There's no consequences for doing wrong anymore. And uh, you know what? We, we come to the point where we, we've lost the whole system in our civil government. But yet, no responsibility, no accountability, no fear of God. We see it in the Christianity side of the spiritual government, in the people structure. You know what? Uh, I don't know how many times that uh, you, you go to most churches in this city, you'll not hear any hard preaching. They don't want to chase you off. They got such big budgets and such big financial things that they've got to do. They'll tell you whatever you want to hear and not tell you what you should hear just so they'll want to offend you and you'll leave. There's no hard preaching anymore. There's no hell. There's no judgment. There's no 
I guarantee you, if you got all the message and sermons together in this city in the last year that preachers preached uh, uh, hellfire and brimstone on the judgment seat of Christ, I bet you couldn't fill a, a notebook with them. And because of that, there's no responsibility and there's no accountability. In fact, it's just the opposite. I hear it all the time. Well, in your teaching, you have to uplift. In your teaching, you have to motivate. In your teaching, you... But the bottom line is this, my friend. If, if you don't fear God and the consequences of doing wrong, what's the point? Somebody says, you can't scare people into hell. You got to win them with love. Hey, I understand God's love, but you know what God's love really is defined in the Bible? God's love, somebody says, well, he's such a hard preacher. He doesn't have any love and he doesn't have any grace. You know what love and grace is defined in the Bible? Love and grace is God pouring out his wrath on his son on the cross for you and for me. That's God's love and God's grace. We live in a world that we don't want to hear today. Christian world, just like the civil government. We don't want to hear it. Listen, fear is the healthiest emotion God ever gave you. And it's a thing that keeps you from screwing up. Why, if right now somebody ran into this back room back here and, and had a police uniform on and, and policemen come on in here and firemen were right down the steps behind them and they tell us that, that screamed loud and some of them had bullhorns and some of them were running around screaming that somebody just got a phone call and a bomb's going to go off and it's, it's three minutes to 11 and uh, they said that uh, in three minutes this, uh, this place, there's a bomb in here. We don't know where it's at. Everybody's got to get out and they were screaming and yelling. You know what? You'd be out of here so fast you, couldn't, you wouldn't know what hit you. I doubt very seriously if somebody was sitting there seat and crossed their arms and says, unless he says it with love, I ain't going. <laughs> Why does he have to yell? Why can't he talk in a civil tone? Because there's a bomb going to go off. You see, that's where we are. That's where we are. We sit here in a, about, right about now, we look back there and about a 1,200-pound African lion come romping into this place. You'd be out of here so fast, some of you would be hanging on these fans, and you wouldn't think you could do it. You'd be surprised how you can move when you have to. The pastors say, the churches say, the people say, the theologians say, you shouldn't scare people. Bible says, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, that Noah moved with fear in the preparing of the ark and the saving of his household. Jude chapter 1 verse 23 says, Bible says, Others saved with fear, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 28 says, Serving God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Bible says in Proverbs chapter 3 verse 7, By the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. Somebody said, Well, you shouldn't scare people in your preaching. You shouldn't talk about hell. You shouldn't talk about judgment. Well, I'll tell you what old Bob Jones Sr. used to say. He'd say, You're better off to be hell scared than hell scorched. We as God's people today, we're afraid of everything in this life except the one person we should be afraid of, and that's God. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 says, And fear not them which are able to kill the body, but not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him that is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And now, I mean, you know, somebody says, Well, yeah, but the Bible says that perfect love casteth out fear. I'm not afraid of God. I'm not afraid of God. Me and him are best buddies. We walk together every day. If you can't see his power evident in my life in this church, then you need to be someplace else. Me and him are walking together as close as I can. And I don't fear him. But I do fear what he can do to me if I screw up. Because I know there's consequences. Now, it has nothing to do with me fearing God, but everything with me doing between walking through the white lines. That's what I'm talking about. 
That's what I'm talking about. Now look at verse 5 there. Here's another aspect. It's not just because you fear the wrath, but for conscience sake, it says. For conscience sake. And yet the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, that you and I as God's people, we can sear our conscience. Something that used to bother us don't bother us anymore. There were times that we'd not do something or we'd do something that would just put us prostrate on the ground and we would weep to God and now we just do it and smile. Sear your conscience. Searing your conscience. Searing your conscience. Now here's how it breaks down. God sets up the government. They set up laws. They're a minister to God for right, even though it's an ungodly government. We respect them, and we fear what happens if you break the law, because there has to be a, a structure of accountability in civil society. As an unsaved man, you need to fear the consequences of a holy God and the fact that your life without God will send you screaming into the lake of fire. And you need to fear that. As a Christian, you don't, you don't need to fear your government. There's no reason to fear your government in the sense of that uh, because you're not planning on doing anything wrong. But you fear them and it keeps you from doing wrong. And for a child of God, the real fear needs to be, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 says, the judgment seat of Christ. I firmly believe we talked a bit about this Thursday night. I firmly believe that you and I as God's people, as much as we try to learn the Bible, if I've, if I've come to any conclusion in my life in over 40, almost 40 years of studying the Bible, I found that I have just scratched the surface of this thing. And I'm telling you, well, I'm coming. The older I get, the more I fi- figure that the things, the way I figured out they were going to work over here, isn't the way they're going to work at all. And boy, you take that judgment seat of Christ. You take that judgment seat of Christ. We take that thing and yawn today. You know why? No accountability. No responsibility. No fear of the consequences. No fear of standing before God uh, after he died for you and all the things that he did with your ho-hum life and where you're at with the Lord. Now, I understand in saying that that there's many of you here today that are just gotten saved and you're on fire and you want to do what's right and you take this the wrong way because you'll think you're not doing enough when in actuality you're probably right where you're at. I'm talking about us old folks talking about you and me who know better you and me who've been around for a while you and me that understand that uh, we we take ministry becomes just an annoyance sometimes we do things because we're expected to do them but really it's an annoyance it gets in the way of what you really want to do and that's our problem you see and the reason we get that way is phil i hope you never get sick i hope you never get sick uh, I, but, I, but I'm glad you're still here if you are sick. You know why? Because if it wasn't for you, I'd think I'd preach to no, nobody else in here. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you something. As a child of God, you and I may never go to hell. But you better realize that the judgment seat of Christ will be the closest you ever get as a child of God to going to hell. That Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15 and chapter 3, verse 13, that the fire is going to try every man's works. That's the same fire of the people torment in hell. And that Bible says that every, the fire is going to make manifest what we did. And we're going to stand there and watch the fire of hell. 
The fire that the damnation of hell try our works and what we did. And that fire is going to take everything from you except your soul. And you just say, oh, well. Oh, well. I've even had people tell me, well, you know what, Bob, that may be true, but at least I'll be saved. What a fool you are. What a fool you are. Why, if you went out tonight someplace and, or last night someplace and, and you went out and your wife and your family uh, was there at home and, uh, and, and you went out with a guy someplace or out to somebody's house and you came back about 11 o'clock and you saw as you come over the hill, uh, red lights flashing and you got around to your street and looked down there and there was four or five fire trucks, police cars, ambulances all over the place and you drove up in your driveway and there was once your home which is now a cinder down to the foundation and you get out of that car and they tell you you lost your wife, you lost your boy, you lost your daughter, you lost your dog, you lost your cat, you lost everything you've got. Would you walk around the street praising God that you're still okay? You better get a perspective and a reality, people. There's a judgment seat of Christ coming. Hey, a thousand times in my life I wanted to do something but I didn't do it because I recognized the consequences of doing it. As a child of God, you may never go to hell, but that same fire is going to take everything you got. The judgment seat of Christ today, my friend, is the most unknown, misunderstood, and foreign doctrine of the church. So we have three forms, you see. And we have that for accountability, and we have it for structure. And in both cases, civil and spiritual, we've lost the two aspects that make it work. And that's why Christianity has collapsed, just like civil government has collapsed. No accountability for what we do. No responsibility. Your kids do something wrong, you don't hold them accountable. You alibi for them. You fix it for them. You don't make them face the consequences. You work a way out around it so they don't have to deal with it. That's what we do. And that's what we do. All right, now look at back to verse 4. You can breathe easy now. I'm off that. But if thou do evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but that's one of the greatest, clearest verses in all the Bible on the doctrine of capital punishment. Capital punishment is a Bible doctrine is to be part of the governmental structure. And if you don't carry it out, if you leave people on death row, and there's any way you want to do it, electric chair, you know, hanging, lethal injection, firing squad, uh, guillotine, whatever you want, uh, there's consequences that come along with that. Now, cockerel punishment, as you obviously already know today, is a very hot topic in our world today. It's a hot topic in Missouri. It's a hot topic in Kansas. And the issue that always comes up is an issue that always comes up in a society when, uh, when, they, don't, uh, when, they, don't, uh, when they take away responsibility and accountability and nobody has to be accountable for anything. It's hard to execute somebody and take their life when your whole structure is built around the fact that they're not accountable anyhow. See how that thing works? And of course, uh, you know, uh, personally, I think the 
I, I, you know, I, I think the most horrific way of being uh, a capital punishment, I think they ought to have it in America. I think that, I think, I think capital punishment in America ought to be this form and ought to be public. And I think the most terrible form, when I think about capital punishment, the most terrible form to me is the guillotine. That was big in France, Louis XIV. And uh, the guillotine was one of those things where they had a, a structure where they laid you down with your hand behind your back. They put your head through a little deal and put a board down on it, and then there was a big thing up here with a big blade on it, and that thing was as razor sharp, and that guy hit that handle, and that thing come down and chopped your head off, went into a basket. Now, to me, that's, I mean, I, and I've never been executed. <laughs> but to me, that would be the tough way to go. I saw an old 1930s film one time of a guy being electrocuted, a real guy being electrocuted back in the 30s or early 40s, and I'll tell you that, that's kind of scary, too. I mean, this guy was, uh, I mean, I had, a, I, I, I had a tough time eating anything deep fried for a while, I'm telling you. It was pretty gross. But I can't imagine anything worse than a guillotine. And I mean, the very fact that, you know, you tie your hands behind your back and they lay you on a table and they put you in there and you're just waiting for that blade to go. At least if they give you a lethal injection, they put you to sleep. I mean, you know, they knock you out, you know, it's like killing a dog. You know, they knock him out and then they put the thing, stops your heart. You don't even know what happened. And the hanging would be tough. I mean, you know, it wouldn't be the hanging, it would be the drop at the end that really gets you, you know. But in firing squad, I think it would probably be the best. Because you could always, you could, and I guess if you really wanted to overcome it, you could yell and scream something right at the moment, and that would get your mind off of it, and then you'd be dead and you wouldn't have to worry about it. I guess. I don't know. That wouldn't work good with electrocution, because that takes 20 minutes sometimes. But guillotine's tough. I've even heard stories where after they cut the guy's head off, they pick up his head, and he's still looking around trying to talk. And that always bothered me. What if you can see, you know? What was he trying to say? Maybe he's trying to sing. I ain't got no body. Boom, boom, nobody got me. I don't know. He, but, you know, that's scary to me. I, I wouldn't want to do it. And then in real bad cases, they turn you around and you got to watch the blade come down. That's even tougher. That's tougher. I mean, you know what I worry about? I worry about to get a dull blade. Oh, I would. I mean, wouldn't it be a terrible thing? One thing is just whack. But something else, if it only goes halfway through. I mean, uh, in hanging, if they if don't kill you the first time, you get to go free. I guess if it only went down through and cut half your neck, they'd say, well, you go, oh, yeah, where are you going? <laughs> it's going to go spurt blood over everybody. Scary. You know why I don't fear those things? I ain't planning on killing anybody. I think it's a terrible way to die. I think that public executions like they used to have, I think it puts a fear in people. I think your young people see that thing. But today we're afraid of traumatizing our people. So we, our, our young kids, you know what we do? We let them grow up and they go out and traumatize somebody else. See? I mean, trauma, trauma everywhere. You just pick where it's going to hit you at. See? Now, you know what our, you know what our, you know what our statue is for our just, justice system in the legal system is? And I told you before that all this stuff is based on the Bible. You ever seen, a, you ever seen the, 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 the statue for justice? Well, first of all, it's a woman. That'd be Proverbs 31. And she's got a blindfold on because justice is blind, or supposed to be. Then she's got a scale of balances in her hand, and that's biblical way of measuring things, fair and balanced. And then on the other hand, you know what she's got? She's got a sword. You know why she's got a sword? Because the word there uh, is execute. Now, look in your Bible for a moment right there. Look at that word execute. I'm going to teach you something about your Bible. 
Now, if you've got a real King James Bible or a real, real, real Bible, that word execute will be in italics. Okay? Now, what do the italic words mean in your Bible? I'll tell you what they mean. When you translate from one language to another language, say in this case, Hebrew to English, it doesn't match up exactly. What they call idioms in languages don't add up. So the verse, if you put it in language, one for the other, straight across, it wouldn't, it wouldn't make any sense. So the words in italics, when, they came, when the King James translators came, when the men put that Bible together, who knew their Bible and knew the Bible doctrine probably better, and there was 57 men when they started out, they all didn't make it, some of them died. But the bottom line was they were men who knew that Bible inside and upside down. When they translated that thing from Greek to English, when the idioms didn't mine up and they had to put words in, they were so honest with their translation that they put the words in italics so you and I would know what words they put in. But they also put those words in based on the Bible doctrine they knew. And they knew in Romans chapter 13 what that sword was for. So they chose the word execute. You can pay me for that later if you want, but that's, that's what they did. That's exactly what they did. Because this woman here, this, this system is to carry out wrath and execute. And that's why you find capital punishment taught all the way through your Bible. It's taught before the law, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, where you're told that whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Uh, it's also taught under the law in Numbers chapter 35. It's also taught after the law here in Romans chapter 13, verse 4, where the sword is to execute. But then you find it in, uh, in Acts chapter 25, verse 11, where Paul was before Felix at Caesarea. You know what Paul tells him? Now, he's before a civil Roman court. He's not in the church. He's in a civil Roman court before Felix in the city of Caesarea. You know what he tells him? Eyeball to eyeball. Look, Felix. If I've done anything to warrant my death, capital punishment... As a Christian, I refuse not to die. You know why? Because he believed in capital punishment. It's taught before the law, during the law, and after the law. Because it's part of the structure. It's part of the, it's part of the responsibility and accountability. The problem today is there's no Bible any longer, so there's no absolute authority. Now, I told you that God's form of government was the nation of Israel. That's our model. I also showed you how America was the originally set up after that model. Our laws, and we talked about this before, and the Old Testament laws uh, are based on the laws given to the nation of Israel. Now, you know why you've got a controversy today uh, in uh, separation of church and state? They want to take the Ten Commandments out of all the courthouses. Do you know why the Ten Commandments were in the courthouses to begin with? Because originally this country was founded and based on those Ten Commandment principles by which this country was to operate. But in time, when the authority goes, the structure goes, the Ten Commandments got to go. I mean, it's just that simple. I mean, do you know, when you go, at a, when you go to a trial, when you go to a trial, and you're going to take a trial, and you've got to have a jury, what, how many people on that jury? How many? Twelve? Twelve. Oh, my, my, my. The exact same number of the elders of Israel when they had to deal with a matter. One from each tribe. See? 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 Now, I'll show you how God fixes things. I'll show you how God whacks this thing. You go to New York today, you go there down by the river, or you know what you'd find? You'd find the UN building, United Nations. The United Nations was put together uh, early on as the League of Nations after World War I. Then after World War II, it became the United Nations. Anybody know what verse they put atop of the United Nations in 1947 when they put that building in? 
Anybody know what verse is up there? Anybody know? Come on. Anybody know? Anybody want to know? One. I'll tell you guys afterwards, okay, then, because nobody else seems to care. The United Nations is an incredible organization. And up on, their, up on their top of their building, they put Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. And Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4 says this. It's a verse dealing with the coming of Christ and the millennial reign of God's government. And it's chapter Isaiah 2, 4, which says that they're going to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and they'll not know war anymore. Now, you want to know how God fixes that thing up? I'm telling you. If you're unsaved here this morning or you're a saved person, look for the thing in your life that is right under your nose that God has given you that you're missing, and that's what he's going to judge you with. That's what he's going to judge you with. Could you imagine being a member of the UN for 20 years, walking in and out those front doors with that verse over you that talks about Jesus Christ coming back and the millennial reign of Christ coming back, and everything you do in there is to get around his coming back? How's God going to judge these people? He's going to send them right on the front steps, lift the verse off, and send them to hell with it. Every day of their life. Every day of your life. You watch and find it. You figure it out for yourself. You can be as slick and smart as you think you want to be as a Christian out of fellowship with God, but the end of the road comes when you stand before him, and he takes that thing that you thumbed your nose at and beats you to death with it at the judgment seat of Christ. I'm telling you, God's got it fixed, man. Now you look at the book of Numbers, chapter 35. Numbers, chapter 35, verse 16 says this. And if he smite him with an instrument of iron so that he die, he is a murderer. Now mark this. The murderer shall be put to death. One. 17. And if he smite him with a throwing of a stone where he may die, and if he die, he is a murderer Mark it down, number two, the murderer shall be put to death. There's two. Or if he smite him with a hand weapon of wood, wherewith he may die, and he die, he is a murderer. Number three, the murderer shall be put to death. Look at verse 30. Whoso killeth any person, the murderer shall be put to death. There's number four. Look at verse 31. Moreover, he shall take no satisfaction for the life of the murderer, which is guilty, but he shall surely be put to death. Five times. Five is the number of death in the Bible, by the way. He tells you, if somebody murders somebody, you kill him. You kill him. And in this chapter, and we don't have time to get into it, but in this chapter, he lays out the difference between manslaughter, which is accidentally killing somebody, and premeditated murder, which is malice in your heart. Now, look at this. When you come on through these Old Testament passages, you want to add uh, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 11, and then you want to flip over to the New Testament in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. You know what it says? It defines for you what murder is. And you've got to get these definitions down. It ain't enough to say, well, the Bible says the law shall not kill, so just don't kill anybody. Well, if that's true, how come God killing everybody? If that's true, how come God told you here to kill the murderer? See, we've got to get this sorted out. You've got to understand this when you go out of here today. And the bottom line is real simple. It's real simple. It's real simple. He explains in these chapters what manslaughter is, and he explains in these chapters what premeditated murder is. Then he puts the key in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, and it says, and for you and for me. Oh, this is a good one. 
This is for you smug people out there that, and God's people all over the world that wouldn't think of picking up a pistol and shooting somebody, wouldn't pick a, think of picking up a knife and stabbing somebody, but, uh, and wouldn't think of going out and killing somebody, but, yet the, but you hate people in your heart for whatever reason, and yet the Bible says in 1 John that if you hate somebody in your heart, you're already a murderer. You know why? Because murder starts in the heart. If you're digging a hole or cutting wood and the axe head flies off and kills somebody, you didn't mean to do it. But if that same person you have something against and you want to get him and you fix the axe head so it'll go off and kill him, now you're a murderer, see? It started in here. You know why it starts in here? That's where all sin starts. I say, how do you get over that? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee? Try to start with that. Oh, the absolute infallible standard of the word of God. Man says, I won't go to war because the Bible says thou shalt not kill. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Well, first of all, a man in war is never called a murderer. He's called a slayer. But I don't want to get too technical with you. You might have a heart attack. Somebody says, capital punishment's against God. Because the Bible says thou shalt not kill. So we shouldn't kill them just because they killed somebody else and break the commandment. Now watch. Now you're faced with these things. Now I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to show you something in your Bible. And this is why I love the Bible. And I tell you all the time that the Bible's of no private interpretation. When somebody gets up and he says, we shouldn't, we shouldn't kill people, uh, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't kill people in the electric chair because it's because they killed somebody else because the Bible says thou shalt not kill. That's a private interpretation. Somebody says, well, I'm not going to war and fight because the Bible says thou shalt not kill. That's a private interpretation. I'm going to show you, what the, I'm going to show you how you use your Bible that when you get into these scenarios, the Bible itself tells you exactly what it means. And this is incredible. But this Bible's filled with things like this. Now, I'm going to show you one of the greatest things you're ever going to see in your life. All right? We've just come through the verse that says, spare not the murderer. Five times. I showed you where capital punishment was in effect before the law, during the law, and in the New Testament church. Numbers chapter 35 lays out the accidental death of somebody, manslayer. We call it manslaughter, and then premeditated murder. Now we are faced with a dilemma. I mean, I love contradictions in the Bible. You know why I love them? Because first of all, there are no contradictions in the Bible. And are in there because God wants to show you some great truth if you just get your head out of wherever it's at and study the Word of God and see what God's got for you. Now, we're faced with a dilemma, a contradiction of what to do. The Old Testament says, thou shalt not kill. Ooh, one of the Ten Commandments. Yet the Bible says, kill the murderer, take no satisfaction, and kill him. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Now, watch this. Now, this is why I'm telling you, and I'm going to say it again. And I keep saying it over and over and over again. At some point in your life, you have got to make that Bible your final authority for what you do. And the way you do that is to learn the principles. Use the principles. Now, I'm going to show you how to use the principles in this, in this complicated, oh, this is, this is a sticky wicket. Now, watch. Watch how Jesus himself solves this thing for you. Turn over to Matthew chapter 19. Now, in Matthew chapter 19, we got a great story. It starts in verse 16 and goes down through verse 20. Now, let me just give you a side note on this. So many days, if you guys want a good message to preach, here it is. This is a side note now. We'll get back to it. But I want to give you this outline real quick here. This is a great side. This is a great, great message to preach. Because this, this, this story in itself is a great story and makes a great sermon. And when you come down through there, the story basically is this. You have a young man who comes to Jesus. And uh, the young man says this. Here's the first thing he says. He says, good master, what good thing must I do to be saved? Now, that's your first key. There's something wrong here. 
Because that's exactly what people do. They think you've got to do something to get to heaven. So we come to Jesus and said, what good thing must I do? Now, the Catholic would say, you've got to be baptized. Somebody else would say, you've got to live a good life. You've got to do this. You've got to come to church. No, no. It's nothing you do. But it sets up the great study of this, this story uh, because of the fact that this guy's life, like so many of people's lives, is built around things. See? Things. I told you a couple of weeks ago that rich people mostly don't ever, don't ever get to God. At verse 22 is why. Look at verse 22. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. You know what God told him to do? God taught him another great, God was trying to teach him a great principle. And God says, uh, what do I got to do? When he go down through the law for a little bit, and God says, okay, if you really want an eternal life and you want to follow me, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. You know what the principle is God trying to teach him? If you want to keep it, you got to give it away. Now, if that young man would have said, okay, Lord, that's what I'm going to do, God would have said, never mind, you got it. Because it wasn't about the material things. It was about the man's attitude, his heart. His possessions was his God. You see that thing? And I love verse 20. The young man said unto him, all these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? I got a message I preached on, yet thou lackest one thing. And I got it from George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a great preacher. And he was preaching one time outside of Boston back in the 1700s, and he was staying with some people that, they, that put him up. And they were good people, but they were lost. And he tried to witness to them, and he tried to lay it out to them, and they just came every night to hear him preach, but this wouldn't get moved. Same thing like this kid here. They had to have a lot of possessions. They had one of the nicest houses in town. They were high up in the church, and they had everything they could want, and they didn't have room for God. And old Whitfield got burdened for him. And it was wintertime, and it was cold, and the windows had frosted up. And George Whitfield was getting ready to leave that morning, and he was so burdened about the fact that that couple didn't get saved, and he preached his heart out, was praying for him all week long, and he just didn't move. And right before he leaves, he gets his bags packed, he gets his stuff ready, walked over that frozen window, and he looked at that frozen window, and God put a thought in his heart. You know what he wrote on that window with his, with his ring? He wrote on that window the quotation right out of here, Yet thou lackest one thing. And by the time he left and a lady come up to make up his room, the room had heated up and that little scratching on there had melted into a thing that you couldn't miss it. And she walked over and looked at that window and immediately the Holy Spirit of God, she called her husband to come up and immediately the Holy Spirit of God smote them in their heart. They both fell on their knees and trusted Christ, their own personal Savior. Yet thou lackest one thing. That's a great story. That's a great story. That's a great passage. There's a great sermon in there. The great concept of that is that God will always hit you with what you love more than him. See? Now, back to where Legan here. Watch this. Watch Jesus himself interpret for you what he meant in Exodus chapter 20 when he laid down the sixth commandment. Then he says, thou shalt not kill. Now watch this. Watch this. Verse 16. And behold, one came and said unto him, good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, and that is God. If thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. And he saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Look at it, look at it. What does it say in Exodus chapter 20? Thou shalt not kill. What does it say here? Thou shalt do no murder. See what Jesus did? He just interpreted through, uh, through Numbers chapter 35 what he meant in Exodus chapter 20. He wasn't talking about killing somebody. 
back there when he said, thou shalt not kill, he was talking about premeditated murder. And he defined it for you in Matthew. That's called using the Bible, Scripture with Scripture, to interpret what the Bible says. The killing in Exodus chapter 20 is the murder of this chapter right here. And he told you right there that it wasn't thou shalt not kill, was defined as thou shalt not murder in Matthew chapter 19. Premeditated murder, just like in Numbers chapter 35. And then he sets the context. If you murder someone, you die. Killing a convicted murder is not murder. It's executing God's wrath and vengeance on evil. Now, I'll go back to a moment, and I told you that when your kids did what was wrong in the Old Testament, they executed them. You ever notice how they executed them? What was the common model of execution in the Old Testament of the nation of Israel? It was stoning. You ever wonder why it was stoning? I mean, they all had a sword. They could have cut the guy's head off. No, they cut everybody else's head off. You ever notice they never stoned anybody that wasn't part of their own group? Everybody else got hacked to pieces with swords. You know why? Because they're all unsaved people, nations outside. That's all a picture of the second coming of Christ. No, 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 no. They never killed their own people with swords. They killed their own people with stones. You know why? Because stones are God made in the Bible. Don't you know in Daniel chapter 2, when Jesus Christ comes back and smite the nations, he's called the stone made without hands? Stoning somebody in the Bible is a picture of what God's judgment is to you right now because those stones are a picture of the Word of God. You know what's going you know to get you as a child of God? You know how you're going to get stoned? Stoning didn't go out of style today. You just get stoned with something different than a rock. You get stoned with the principles of the Word of God. You know what those rocks did when they hit you? You got about 30 people around and they just start wailing rocks at you, some of them as big as a brick. They start busting your head. They start busting your shoulders. They start busting your legs. They knock you down. You try to run. You can't. There's enough people in a circle around you. You knock you down and you can't get up. And those stones just keep coming. And those stones just keep coming. And you know what? Finally, those stones kill you. Spiritually, you know what that is? That's a picture of what happens to you and me when we get out of fellowship with God. Those verses just keep coming. Those principles just keep coming. You try to run. You can't get out of God's circle. And those principles, those stones, those rocks, they just keep coming. They're God-made. You remember when they made the Tyre of Babel? You remember when they made the Tyre of Babel? They didn't make it out of stone. They make it out of slime and mortar and brick. Bricks in the Bible are man-made things. Stones in the Bible are God-made. That's why every altar in the Old Testament that somebody made had to be made with stones. And all those stones coming down on that just rebellious person, you do understand that the Bible says over there in Samuel, I believe it is, that uh, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. So they stoned them. And for you and for me, it's a picture just like they couldn't get out from under the stoning and it finally got them. You can't get out from under the principles of the Word of God. Except the difference is this. They're under the law and there was no grace. You're under grace and God give you another chance. You may be being pelted this morning by the principles of the Word of God and it got you so far down it's about ready to break your back. And you know what? They had no choice. They could not get out. You, under grace, have a chance. You can get out from under it. Oh, the unsearchable riches. That's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 13, verse 4, he is a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. And he says, be afraid. And when you don't do it, like in modern day America, the whole authority structure breaks down and men don't fear to do evil. And Christians don't fear to do evil. Edmund Burke was a great, I don't know what he was. He wasn't a Christian. He was a guy who wrote, 
philosophy things, but he said something one time that I think I've always kept in my mind, and it's probably the closest he ever got to any Christian thing, and many, many worldly principles are based on the Bible anyhow, but you know what he said? And I've kept this in the back of my mind many, many times. I've seen things go on in in situations and in families and churches uh, and and go on and on and on all because uh, either the father or the mother or in some cases the pastor didn't have enough courage to deal with what needed to be dealt with. And I've seen in situations uh, we're all across the place where uh, that that it, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. I've seen circumstances where somebody didn't have the courage to stand up to somebody else and, and do what was right and hold them accountable to the Word of God. And uh, I've seen it in civil government. I've seen it in families. And I've seen it in God's structure of the church. And Edmund Burke called it out and laid it out really good when he said this in one of the greatest statements he ever made. Evil triumphs. Evil triumphs when good men do nothing. And that's where we're at today. Evil triumphs when good men do nothing. Well, now you understand how the whole thing lays out. You can see now, as I told you the other week, the book of Romans in every chapter, the entire book formed for us as New Testament Christians what our perspective should be as a child of God. It goes through every aspect. We're in chapter 13. We're now understanding civil government. We're now understanding why you are to obey it, why you should be afraid, why you should not be afraid. All the aspects, all the elements. We've defined for you capital punishment. We've talked about the, the, all of the things that you have to face with. And these are issues that you have to live with and deal with every day of your life because you live under the authority of a secular government. And we now understand how that they're God's ministers, that God uses them, all of the verses that I gave you, to help you better understand how we do it. We go on through chapter 13, uh, we, come to, uh, we come to even more things that you're going to learn about the government. And then we come to the last two chapters, the last two chapters in the book of Romans. And, and as we always say, he saved, as far as I'm concerned, the last two chapters for last. And that's no coincidence in my heart, in my mind, that we're going to get into chapter 14 and chapter 15 and chapter 16, really 14 and 15, from where we're at right now and what God has done with us. Because we get into chapter 14 and 15, we see our responsibility as Christians to other Christians. And boy, this is where the rubber meets the road. And this is where we're at right now. This is why you've got to understand, like I talked to you when we started our sermon, you know what? There's a tendency when everything is going good to let your guard down. There's a tendency to realize, and that's when something will come up and it will affect your attitude. That's when the devil will sneak in the back door. That's when uh, many times you'll be faced with the reality of really, did you really do this because you wanted to serve God or because you were expected to do it? This is where all the reality comes out, and this is where you've got to look deep inside yourself. And a good pastor, a good leader, will lead his people through the good times just like he leads them through the bad times. Now, let me just say this to you, and then we're going to close here. Uh, we are standing in, in two incredible opportunities. And obviously, we've talked about them already this morning, and we'll finally get a report back from the church down in Warrensburg where that's at. We'll, we'll keep you up to date on that. But with our, with our volleyball program, if you're a captain and you're going to pick a co-captain or you're somebody in this church that's on a team, I'm telling you right now, 
quit worrying about playing volleyball and trying to figure out how to minister. Go in with the attitude, we're going to minister and we're going to figure out how to play volleyball. You get this thing focused and realize that this is part of it. This is a natural feeder system to some of your prayer groups. Even though I don't want to set them up till a year or so down the line, they're already working that way where you can have somebody on your team and the avenue is to open it up for prayer requests and bring them in and, and be part of that, minister to them. It's an incredible opportunity. It's an incredible opportunity. If you're here and you're not playing on a team and you're going to come out to help Danny and whatever needs to be done, whether it's judge the lines or whatever, or maybe you're just going to come out to go over to Jason's Deli afterwards where that's where we get the work done and, uh, and walk around and meet and introduce yourself. Uh, look for people and look for open opportunities. There's something everybody can do. It's just a matter if you want to do it. And uh, we have a, a tremendous opportunity. I don't even want to think about softball. We're going to have to get Royal Stadium or something. I don't know how we're going to do it. But I'll tell you what, it's a good problem to have. And uh, I want to let you know how proud I am of you for all of you. And I know, just like anything else, there's glitches we've got to work out. I, there always will be um, we'll, in our next time. By the time we're done with this, in two or three cycles, we'll have probably redefined.